Welcome to The Practice Podcast, a show created by lawyers to help lawyers in life and business without all the complicated lawyer language. Let's welcome Bast Amron founders and your hosts, Jeff Bast and Brett Amron. Hello and welcome to The Practice Podcast. Hi, Brett Amron. How Hello, are you? Jeffrey Bast. How are you today? I'm well. Are you? Today, That's I wanted good. to, I am always well. Good. Today, I wanted to talk about the selection of litigator. Ah, yes. When a client or a lawyer or non-litigation lawyer is working with a client and they need to select a litigator, how do they go about doing that? I know there are a number of considerations that are important to that decision, but what would you say is the most important one? Whenever anyone asks me for a referral, I mean, obviously we litigate and we do insolvency work. So usually people aren't asking me for a referral for a litigator, but if it's a specialty or something like that. Sometimes we have a conflict. Yeah, or a conflict. I like to give two names usually, unless it's somebody who I know fits perfectly and there wouldn't be an issue. What the client should do is meet with the lawyer and have that comfort level. The client should think that the lawyer is his or her greatest advocate for what the client wants within reason, right? I mean, if a client's interest is to settle a case as quickly as possible or to litigate to the mats or create leverage for a negotiation or something like that, the entire strategy should be focused towards that goal and achieving that goal rather than how can I prolong this as a litigator? How can I make a name for myself in this case? How can I show the other side that I'm the best ever and I'm going to beat them at every stage? You know, it shouldn't be about that. And sometimes it's not just ego or arrogance. It's, this is how I've done it before. Correct. And so we're going to do it this way again. And well, there's some that ego may or, or may not be consistent with the client's interests. Well, there's some ego or arrogance, I would argue, in, in that, that yeah, right? In true. saying, hey, I've done this before. Trust me, just sit there. I'll, I'll take care of it. Now, there's a level of ego or arrogance in anything we do, right? Because it's, hey, you're coming to me to ask me for my advice and because of my expertise. And so I'm going to tell you what that is, but I have to listen to what you tell me as a client and say, okay, that's your goal. Here's how I've done that in the past. So there's the ego and the arrogance that comes in a little bit to say, this is how I've done in the past to achieve your objective client. And that is something that you almost have to, without doing it literally, but almost plaster it on the wall in your office because you can't lose sight of that. It's so easy to get dragged in on a fight instead of filing an answer and preserving a firm defenses. No, I'm going to, that complaint, I'm going to file a motion to dismiss. When you know, in reality, maybe that motion is not going to be granted and you're going to spend way more money. But if the client's goal is to try to be as efficient, effective as possible, while not giving away the farm, maybe it's better in that instance to say, you know what, I could fight, I could create more of an issue for those guys, but let me file an answer, preserve what I would otherwise argue on a motion to dismiss and deal with this in some discovery at a later date where I may have a better chance of succeeding on this issue. So the importance there is understanding and alignment with the client's interest. Correct. And so for a client that's looking for a lawyer, obviously you mentioned comfort and connection. You said a meeting, I've seen it, but you can establish that comfort by telephone. It doesn't have to be a meeting in person, but speaking to the litigator and making sure that you're comfortable with that person, that they're comfortable with you, that there's a comfort level on the objectives and that there's an alignment. This is my objective because I think a lot of lawyers, litigators in particular, lose sight of 
what the client's objective is, and they're the ones making decisions rather than conferring with their client about whatever the objective may be. Yeah, I mean, listen, there's some competitiveness to what we do. And if anyone tells you otherwise, they're not being truthful. And so when you walk into court, it's like, oh man, I really want to prevail. A, you want to prevail for your client, but you know, I want to prevail. I hate losing. I hate losing more than I like winning, right? I mean, that's the whole thing. But we cannot get so caught up in the competition that sometimes you lose a battle, but your goal is to focus on the war, which, you know, is not a great use of those terms. But you may decide I'm going to back off on this issue because I'm trying to be as effective and efficient as possible for the client, keeping in mind what the client's ultimate objective is at the end, and that this is all part of the strategy and not get sucked into it, not send out 150 requests for production rather than sending out 30 or 10 that are targeted. Same thing with interrogatories or depositions. I'm going to depose everybody in this case instead of saying, I think I can do five. These five people are super important. And then let me see if I need anybody else. Those are just obvious examples. And keeping in mind, again, the objective of the client. Does any of this analysis of selecting a litigator, does it change if you're a plaintiff or a defendant? I think it does. For um, the lawyers. I mean, I mean, the like lawyers, when you're looking for a litigator, yeah. if you're going to be the plaintiff, you want a lawyer who's a plaintiff's lawyer. Because I think plaintiff's lawyers yeah. and defense lawyers are very Yeah, sure. Very I mean, different. you know, and I know we've touched on this in a couple of podcasts. Plaintiff's lawyers build the case. It's kind of like when I was a prosecutor, we get to build our case. And on the plaintiff side, you have to build your case. You have to prove every single element of every claim. You got to prove your damages. And on the defense side, it's trying to figure out where the soft spots are, where the lack of proof is, where you can create doubt, whether it be elements or on damages. And so there's a different analysis and a different skill set, I would say. There are some firms, and I think traditionally, the bigger firms that tend to have institutional clients are typically on the defense side. So they're used to slow playing cases. In most instances, defendants are interested in delay. Delay benefits a defendant. Plaintiff is looking to accelerate, put pressure on. Those are different skill sets. And I would submit that a lawyer and a client that are looking to hire a litigator should be looking for a litigator who typically falls on their side of the V as the plaintiff or the defendant. Nobody does just one thing or the other. Most lawyers can be on either side. And, And there's a good argument that if you've been on the plaintiff side, you're better on the defense side or vice versa because you know what it's like and you know what they're looking for and you know what drives the other side. And I experienced this myself coming out of big law after 15 years at big law. I was typically a defendant's lawyer and you and I started working together. You're a former prosecutor. You're usually a plaintiff side lawyer. It was an adjustment for me. I was used to slow playing and playing the delay game and you taught me the importance of pushing and fighting and moving the case along. Yeah, that's typical. I mean, look, as you indicated, just because somebody does mostly plaintiff's work doesn't mean they won't be a good defense lawyer. And same thing with the defense lawyer versus a plaintiff side. In the civil context, it's really familiarity with the issues, maybe some expertise if it is that kind of issue, familiarity in the courts, familiarity with lawyers involved, and comfort, as we talked about, between the client and focus on the objectives, right? If you walk in to a meeting with a potential lawyer that you're going to hire, litigator, if they don't ask 
ask you, what's your goal? What do you want out of this? And they just talk about what they're going to do. To me, I'd stand up and walk out because they're not going to listen to me as a client. They already have in their head what they're going to do and how they're going to quote unquote win as opposed to listening to me. And so when we get in the thick of it, litigation wise, six months, a year, two years down the line, and I'm already into them for a lot of money and we're moving forward, the train has left the station. I I mean, very hard at that point to say, by the way, I would have settled this thing for half of what I just paid you. I think it's super important. And as we always do with our clients, we ask them. We are also good about communicating with the clients constantly. Always. We have a rule here that a client should never learn about something we did or something that happened by reading it on the bill. They should always know what's happening in our cases. And I think I'm always surprised at how few lawyers do that. And we know we've seen it in many cases where we've conveyed maybe a settlement offer and we know it hasn't been communicated to the client. And the only time we ever can find that out is at mediation when we finally have an opportunity to interact with the other side's clients. But I want to circle back to something you mentioned, and that is the idea of expertise. So do you think it's important if it's a litigation case about a technology contract, is it important that the lawyer has expertise in that in technology cases or technology companies? Probably not. I think like patent, tax, things like that are super important to have some expertise in as a litigator. But things where if it's at its core, a breach of contract or a partnership dispute or something like that, where there may be a technology or or something that may be a little more complicated. To me, there's a reliance on the client who is in that space, who can educate you and you can work with the client on those issues instead of going and buying a book and reading. Or two, if there's going to be an expert, I always like the earlier for me, the better in terms of hiring a consulting expert, because that A is going to save the client some time with me having to educate myself, but also getting that person on board early, which will help define the strategy. If the lawyer has right. experience with that particular subject matter, it, it doesn't hurt no, for sure. No, but doesn't. I don't think it's necessary. I think litigation is litigation. Yeah, I think and that's right. A contract is a contract. And if there is some specialization, the likelihood is you're going to need an expert anyways. And so the expert can fill that role. What about, okay, so the client finds a lawyer, they have the expertise, they have some familiarity with the court where they're practicing, where the case will be be filed. Maybe they're a plaintiff's lawyer, whatever it is. What else should they be looking for? Because in my experience, litigation just doesn't end with a verdict or a judgment. So there's litigators then there's trial lawyers, and then there's lawyers who know how to collect on judgments and can deal with post-judgment stuff and anything that rises with that, whether it be bankruptcy or other some sort of insolvency. And so when you meet with a litigator, you have to sort of figure out and ask those questions as to whether or not this particular litigator can take you through trial, does have experience collecting on a judgment, does have experience dealing with insolvency issues, because otherwise then you're going to have to hire the litigator if it goes to trial and the litigator's like, listen, I don't try cases. And there are litigators out there that don't try cases. Okay, well then now you got to bring in a trial lawyer. They shouldn't call themselves litigators. No, but they're, <laughs> no, they do. Right, and that, there are that some is, who won't even, who right. would just send a letter. They don't even go to court. Right, so <laughs> that is technically litigation, right? right? And then there's trial lawyers. Then you have the trial lawyer who says, okay, now I got your judgment. Now go collect on it. I don't do that. Then you have right. your collection lawyers. Then you have your insolvency lawyers. Other than going to a big law full service firm that may have all of that and then you, you're compartmentalized, right? 
in different departments. There are lawyers that will do all of it, right. you know, that deal with insolvency issues that may right. arise either prior to the entry of a judgment or after. And that's super important. So if those issues are abound, if those issues are out there, then to me, it behooves you to try to find somebody who has all of that. Like they say in baseball, five-tool player. This is a little bit of a shameful plug, but that's part of why I always say I think people like us, firms like ours that do insolvency and litigation are the best litigators because we understand are focused on what's the ultimate outcome. The ultimate outcome is not a judgment. The ultimate outcome is collection of right, money right. or some other asset or recovery. But a lot of litigators go and get the judgment and they think that's the end of the Well, how many the calls case. how many calls have we received from litigators or trial lawyers that say, hey, I'm in the middle of a trial or I just finished or I'm about to go to trial. They're threatening bankruptcy. My client needs to hire you to come in to help right. us with that process. We get often, that all the time, right? From either side. Sometimes it's the defense side saying, right. we're going to lose. We need to start looking at options. Right. Sometimes it's the plaintiff saying, we're going to win. And the right. other side starting to look at their options. Right. What do we do? Right. So collection is probably equally as important as getting the judgment. It's how to collect because the judgment's a piece of paper. It doesn't, we're not worth anything if you can't get the money that it directs the other side to pay. And that's really an analysis that a litigator should be doing before they get the judgment is, can they pay this judgment? Well, and, is there and some ability. Yeah. And communicating with the client to discuss the expectations. Right. Client says, I want this judgment, get the judgment, go forward, whatever. You have to have that conversation with the client that right. says, okay, that's fine. I can do that. But again, you have to have the information, but you can ask the client, do you know, is this going to be collectible? Do you have right. any idea? You know, well, it's and a conversation we have early on always, in the case. Always. Because we're looking at, again, we're more results oriented and we're focused on insolvency issues as part of our analysis. But the question is, you're going to sue this client or they're a customer of yours, right? How much of your business do they account for? Oh, 30%. Hmm. So when you sue them, you're cutting off 30% of your business. Hmm. I hadn't really thought of that. Are they going to be able to pay this kind of judgment? Hmm. I haven't really thought of that either. And so right. those are calculations that should be done early on in the case before a case is filed. I, I will tell you that fairly recently, you know, and this happens all the time. It happens to you too. I know because we've talked about it. Someone comes in and is either already in litigation and wants to replace their counsel. So they're interviewing or they get sued. And so you're looking at this nice complaint that is drafted and it could be a hundred pages. It could be 50 counts and you're reading it. And I've read these. And my first question is, this looks great. I mean, it's a nice piece of paper. It's cost a lot of money. It looks great. Where would you possibly collect from? Why'd you do this? Well, right, well right. not why. I mean, right, the client yeah. is just sitting in front of you. And so right. it's not the client, right? The question, you know, again, you're not trying to bash the other lawyer. That's not our job. Our job is to ask the question of what their goal is. So can you recover? I mean, these are great claims, but where are you going to get the recovery from? From the people that you've named or the claims that you've asserted. So what's your strategic goal here? And how can you try to recover if that's your goal? And it may be that you don't think you can recover from that party, but maybe you can recover from other parties. But you have to get that judgment first, and then you can go after other parties, perhaps, on fraudulent transfer theories. And, and that's where the insolvency post-judgment stuff comes in. And the overall strategy in that process that non-insolvency litigators may not be thinking about. 
So those are all the things that we kind of think of. And then, of course, you know, which we haven't touched on, and I'm going to ask you, how does fee structure come into all of this? Because that's obviously on the client's mind. It's on the lawyer's mind. How does that all play into selection of a litigator? I think that fee structure kind of goes towards the comfort and alignment conversation we started with. And that is the client has to get comfortable that the interests of the lawyer are aligned with the client. Oftentimes, it's difficult to do that in litigation because typical litigation engagement is hourly. And so a client might walk in and think, hmm, this guy or this firm has an incentive to drag this out and bill as much as they can and they make more money. And so that's why it's important to get comfortable with the people with whom they're meeting and get a recommendation from their lawyer. What is the reputation of this firm? Are they the kind of firm that just overbills and just drags out litigation? Or are they? do they have a habit? Like we love our favorite thing is to send retainers back to clients because we solve the case without burning through the entire retainer. Do they have a reputation of doing that? Will they do alternative fee arrangements? So we will always strive to come to an alternative fee arrangement with a client, either if we're on the plaintiff side, a contingency fee or flat fees based on uh, segments of the case a flat fee for preparing the complaint or a flat fee for conducting a certain part of the discovery or staged fee structures. So that's one of the tools we use to try to ensure that our interests are aligned. But in some respects, the clients have to kind of trust the lawyer, which is the importance of getting a reference, not just finding a lawyer in the yellow pages or I don't know, on the internet, I should say. <laughs> right. Finding a lawyer you on just, the internet. You and just, just dated yourself. Know, thanks. Finding a lawyer on the internet and just calling them, it's just not enough. You should certainly check them out on the internet but it's so important to get a recommendation and find a comfort level. I think you hit the nail on the head. I don't think I have anything to add. I mean, I think that the point you made about what's their reputation on prior engagements, if you can find that out and ask around, that to me is important because that's what will tell you. Anybody can sit in front of you and tell you, trust us, we're going to do this. But unless you have a recommendation from someone you trust before you walk in, and even if you do, maybe there's others that you can... a lawyer. Correct. Maybe you can ask around if you know other people in that area which could be helpful to understanding how they've handled things in the past because that's what's going to tell you how they're going to handle it going forward, right? I mean, I can sit there and say, no, we're efficient and effective and I understand that we are and that's our reputation, but I'm telling you that. So like you said, there's that level of trust, right? right? There's a level of trust for the lawyer too, right? Everything that they're telling us is truthful, that they're going to provide us all the information, they're going to be cooperative, that they're going to pay and the bill goes out. So there's a level of trust going both ways. And so trust, but verify, I would say in terms of all that. And talk to the lawyer about, the litigator about, communication. Communication is always key. Anything that comes into this office or goes out of this office goes to the client. So the client is always aware. So if the client gets a bill at the end of the month, the client is not seeing all this stuff that they have no idea what's going on. And, you know, periodic status reports and updates on the client. Always, you know, the client has a question. Always being available to answer those questions. But keeping the client in the loop on the strategy is important. I don't think I've ever had this to date, but we would never stop sending information or including a client unless the client said, okay, that's enough. Stop. I've never had that. But that's kind of our litmus test. That is what you have to kind of feel out and look for in, in those initial meetings before retention. And I think also a client should look for candor in the lawyer. A lot of lawyers tend to just tell clients what they want to hear. And, you know, I'm going to win. I'm going to do the best. 
I just don't think that is doing the client a service by not telling them, hey, there's real risk in this. We could lose. You could spend all this money and be unhappy. I, I know we've had that conversation with clients before where we yep. try to say, look, we don't think you want to do this. And they insist on doing it and they hire us and we handle the right. litigation. But, or sometimes they but, don't because we're honest with them. Right. And then they walk out and they go find somebody who will just tell them what they want to hear. And then a year down the line, when they're six figures in and it's kind of happening what we told them, sometimes we get a call back and yeah, sometimes we, we don't, of, you know? had many of those situations yeah. where we were maybe too honest because we told the client what we thought it would cost to a fault. And yeah. then they go and hire someone who told them a much smaller number. And it turns out that we were right. Yeah. And, and as they're approaching I mean, listen, it, there's times yeah. when, you know what, our assessment is not spot on. And oh, so on, okay. it's never happened. Well, it never happened to you, but maybe me. The other thing I'll mention is that the importance of going to the litigator with a lawyer is that litigation tends to be a non-repeat event. So when a lawyer handles a litigation case for a client, there's often, not always, but often no expectation of doing more work with that client. So a client might have a concern that the lawyer doesn't have the interest aligned. For us, 95 or 90 something percent of our clients come to us with another lawyer. And so even if that client is not a repeat client, the lawyer is. And so we're really respectful and cautious and thoughtful. It's just another sort of insurance policy, I guess, if you will, for the client, because they know we're not just one and done with them. You know, we have, we have a relationship with the right. law firm that's referring it, and we value that relationship, and we're always going to take care of their clients for them. So nobody wants to get involved in litigation, or they shouldn't want to get involved in litigation because it's rarely a pleasant experience, even when you're on the winning side. But when you're selecting a litigator, you should find a comfort and connection, somebody with experience, somebody who's on the right side of the V, if that's appropriate, and somebody who understands what happens after the entry of a judgment, that is the collection of a judgment, somebody who has some sense of the risks of insolvency from either side, and with all that collective knowledge. And, and, and the fees are aligned, you know, they and, come up with a fee structure that's and, aligning with your goals. Comfort yeah. and alignment with the compensation arrangement fees and with all those boxes checked they are on their way to success have a great day for more information on this show and other resources visit fastamron.com and connect with us on linkedin facebook and instagram at fastamron 